as we continue to read the scriptures and reflect and strive. We get to 1 Peter 4. And I want us to, as we read, to reflect on this. The word of God informs our minds how to think, our hearts how to will, so that Jesus is glorified. And as we continue to read, Peter, as he continues to talk about the struggles of life, the trials, what they are designed to do and how we can grow, grow as a result of our struggles. It is the word of God that informs our minds how to think. What goes on between your ears, that, that, that's, that's a huge part of the battle. What do you believe? What do you believe? What do you truly believe? And if we were to take true inventory of ourselves, look in the mirror, examine our minds, what goes on? What do we think about? What do we gravitate to? If we were honest and do inventory, what do we truly believe? What do we truly trust? And as we continue to look at the word of God, we look in our hearts. And if we were to be honest, what is it that we, we truly like to do? What is it that we always find time to do? Because that which is number one in your heart, you will always find time to do. What is it? That when it comes up, we put everything to the side and we do it because that's what we will. That is what we want to do. Well, it is the word of God that informs us how to think, how we should feel, how we should will. And as we go through the text, let us be honest, do some self-inventory. And may we be encouraged by God. The first, it's basically two sections. The first section will be between verses 1 through 7. It talks about the head. How do you think? The second part will be verses 8 through 11, the heart. What do you do? What do you will? How should you spend your time? The head, the heart. Let us begin. First Peter chapter four, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Here's the first part, the first section. We are to be controlled by the mind of God, not the feelings of the flesh. Arm yourselves with thinking. Peter now wants you to think a certain way. To use your mind. As we read in, in, in Romans 7, Paul, as he struggled and he's sharing with us, he said, no, in my mind it's one way, but in this, the, the, the sinful flesh, it's another Thanks be to God, in my mind, that's my thinking. That's what goes on between my ears. The law of God. 
And look at verse 4. He, 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 he juxtaposes that. He makes an enemy of that what? Uh, the suffering in the flesh. We're to be controlled by our mind, not the feelings of the flesh. Look at verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer. For human passions, but for the will of God. In the same line as Paul, he pits this against this. The feelings, the passions. Most people, when they come to Christ, they don't realize what you feel has been affected by sin also. And the mistake is to elevate my feelings to where they appear, they're empirical, they're godly, and I feel it, therefore it's good. No, it's not. If you rule your life by what I want, what I feel, and what feels good, you will suffer. You will suffer. Your passions, your feelings, your emotions, there is nothing about you that sin has not touched. Dare I say dominated and corrupted. And your feelings are part of that. As I was Studying this, it, it came upon me that I forget where we were talking. Some people were talking and we came up. We talked about this famous saying, the heart wants what it wants. That was originally penned by Emily Dickerson. In a poem in which it seemed as though she was going back and forth with a man. And it did seem as though she was somehow justifying some ungodly behavior. And out of that point comes the famous saying, the heart wants what it wants. And I can't help but this, right next to Emily Dickerson, apparently there's this young singer named Selena Gomez who has a famous song and it's entitled, what is it? The heart wants what it wants. And I said, oh, I'm almost afraid to read the lyrics. But I braved it and I did. And she goes on and she says, it's a popular song, by the way, seems like uh, you go, uh, you go me sipping on. You got me sipping on something I can't compare to nothing. I even know I'm hoping that after this fever, I'll survive. I know I'm acting crazy, a bit. I'm acting a bit crazy, strung out, a little bit hazy. Hand over heart, I'm praying that I'm going to make it out alive. She goes on to say, save your advice, because I won't hear. You might be right, but I don't care. There's a million reasons why I should give you up, but the heart wants what it wants. Oh, oh, deceived little girl. I've often said that songs become number one hits in our culture because it reflects a large portion of what we think and what we feel. It resonates with people. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand why this song so long ago, um, Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's a, it's a, it's a dumb song. But it resonated with a lot of people because he talks, she talks about how love 
hurts. And she no longer wants to feel that way. Well, this Selena Gomez song, same way. The heart wants what it wants. And they can't figure out how to get over the living or the feeling that I feel it, so I want it. And they're carried away by their passions. They live life because they feel a certain way. In the song, she says, I know what is wrong, and you can give all the advice you want, I won't listen. I know it's good advice, and I'm going to keep doing that, which is stupid, because the heart wants what it wants. That song, that saying by Emily Dickerson, it, it reflects a person who is dominated by, humans, by human passions, by feelings. It's an awful way to live. Trapped. Discouraged. And even in the song it recognized, I know it's stupid, it's a bit crazy, it's a bit hazy, but what can I do? Heart wants what it wants. And I think for a large portion of people it reflects the chains of sin that you can't seem to get out of, that you can't seem to counteract because they are driven by their passions and they are dominated by their feelings. Fear dominates them. Lust dominates them. Anxiety, depression, Hopelessness, it controls them. And ultimately it gets them to do whatever they want, the feelings want them to do. And it hurts. But Peter says, you Christian, no longer shall you live like this. We know Christ. We know Jesus. We're Christians. Those who've come to the cross and laid everything down at the cross, including our feelings, because we recognize the sinful man in us. And we've thrown up our hands and said, God, we can't live this life alone. And because of the shed blood on the cross, we yield to you. And now we have the Spirit. And because of that, now Peter can turn to them in verse 3 and says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles he uses as non-believers. Living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. That stuff feels good. Some of it feels okay, better than okay. And I'm reminded of what some pastor said many, many years ago. He says, as Christians, we got to be honest. When we're speaking to people and we tell people, sin hurts, sin hurts. Johnny and Julie and all the young people are sitting there and saying, Pastor, you must be going to the wrong parties. Because the party we went to last night was good. And it felt good. We need to make a distinction. All sin doesn't hurt. 
It's the consequences of sin that hurt. You may have had fun Saturday night, but when you go to the doctor on Tuesday, you're going to realize you picked up something on Saturday and your life is now going to be dominated by that STD you picked up. Whatever else your behavior caused that may now for the lifetime be scars. Don't keep doing what the Gentiles do. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, that which feels good, the passions of the flesh. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. The term is also used, translated as blaspheme you. So as I'm sitting here trying to worship God in my mind, I'm trying to reject the flesh, not going to those parties. And, and, and if any of you, any of you, came to Christ later on, whether it be in high school or college or even as a young adult, you have a crew of people you go with, your close friends, and when you come to Christ, many a time those friends have to drop off. I can no longer go to the clubs with you guys anymore. Can't go to those movies. Sorry, guys, can't go to the bar anymore. And if any of you have experienced that, what do they say? Okay, James, okay, we understand. Follow God. We'll support you. That's not what they do. You idiot. You believe that foolishness? That's what you believe? You dumb dumb. And sometimes you have to think, wait a minute. When I was going out getting drunk or high or stealing, I was okay. But now I no longer want to do that. Now you call me the dummy. Really? As Peter's trying to get you to think a certain way, he's telling you, as you go on and you start to do these things, they will not appreciate that you are going to follow God now. They're going to malign you. They're going to talk about you. They'll lie about you. They'll slander you. That's part of the suffering for Christ. That is the reality of this spiritual warfare. Verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He keeps alluding back to the unseen world. Let them go. Let them go to the drinking parties and the debauchery in the century. Let them go. Because they will have to give an account for that one day. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe there's an unseen God who sees it all? If you truly believe that, Jesus Christ who will judge, do you believe it? Let him go. Let him go. They will give an account. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit 
the way God does. Now let's clarify some things. There is no such thing as purgatory. That's made up. Yes, that was made up. Nowhere in scripture. Nowhere. So what does he mean that the gospel was preached even to those who were dead? What Peter is alluding to or what he's trying to get across is that this is nothing new. The whole judgment thing, the whole living in the dead, the whole Christ, this is nothing new. The good news has been around for, forever. As, as, as the law of Moses is given, as Christ comes, more revelation is given. And many times he, he labels it the gospel of Christ. But the gospel, the good news, the fact that God redeems, it's nothing new. Judgment is nothing new. Do you remember the very beginning of Job? Who was, many believe, the contemporary of Abraham? What is he found doing, this righteous man? Giving sacrifices every day. Why was sacrifices given? Why was something dead put on an altar? To look forward to Christ. That blood was given. That blood will be required to redeem us. And out of all of Job, what's one of the most famous verses? For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand with me on that day. What day? Judgment day. Why a Redeemer? Because I need to be bought back. God needs to buy back. And sure, he didn't know the name was Jesus, but he gave sacrifices every morning. The whole sacrificial system was designed to look forward. Peter said this is nothing new. Judgment is nothing new. Redemption is nothing new. Do you believe it? Joe believed it. I know my Redeemer lives and that he will stand with me on that day. Judgment day. That's what drove, that's what drove Job. And I hope that is what drives you. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your prayers simply means so that your, your prayers aren't hypocritical. Don't go live like the devil, then pray to God. Self-controlled, sober-minded, as opposed to being driven by the flesh. As opposed to simply feeling and doing. Peter deals with the head. This is how you should think. This is how you arm yourselves. Think this way. Sober-minded. Self-controlled. All suffering is designed to get you to this point. When they talk about you, when you give in, or will you stand fast? 
Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Here's the second point, the second area. The will to love overcomes sin in the body of Christ. The will to love covers sin in the body of Christ. The first part, Peter dealt with the head. Now he's going to deal with the heart. Those of us who've been walking with Christ. We know it's one thing to know what is right to do. It's another thing to do it. If we Christians simply carried out what we know we should do. Boy, we would be powerful. But we know that knowing what to do is only half the battle. It's doing it. It's actually leaning on the Holy Spirit so that we will to do what we know we should do. Remember Romans 7 when I first started? Paul says, I knew what to do. He didn't do it. Some instances I knew what not to do. That I did. How do we as believers, as Christians, carry out the will of God? To do that which we know we should do. It's not exhaustive, but Peter gives us a little. And there's something spiritual in this area of how do I get to a point to where I know what I should do. And there's something spiritual in simple, simple obedience. I've learned that if you simply do what you know you're supposed to do, then your heart changes. Your mind changes. That when you, you make the decision to simply do what is right, whether or not you feel like it or not, simple obedience. The heart and the feelings usually follow. Here's the first one. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There is something spiritual and powerful about simply opening up your home to people. Fellowship and breaking bread together. It's powerful. Spiritual. God inhabits those things. That is why here at church we have decided at New Hope to make this year the emphasis of what we call community meals. Breaking bread together. And we didn't just make this up. Acts 2. For they went from house to house breaking bread and they had all things in common. That's what it says. That's what it says. And we're supposed to do without grumbling. Because if you do something and you grumble, then you didn't want to do it in the first place. 
Tell my sons, clear up your room. Okay. In that case, doesn't matter what. I don't care. It's going to be wrong. When it comes to God, invite so-and-so over. Pray with so-and-so. Spend time with so-and-so. Okay, I'll do it, but I don't want to. I'm not done. Then your heart. Your heart's not in it. And it'll show. It'll show. Show hospitality with one another without grumbling. If you do that and you listen to his story and her story and you get to know so-and-so and you spend time with them, you know what begins to happen? A, a, a relationship starts and you start to weave relationships within the body of Christ and then love starts to happen. I think most of us don't love one another because we don't spend time with one another. Can't love someone if you don't know them. But if you know this person, and you know that person, and wow, I, boy, I didn't know you went through that. I didn't know the Lord delivered you from that. Wow. Wow. And you start to hear stories from other people. Wow, the Lord did that? Wow, he's a great God. Real quickly, I'm running out of time. Real quickly, I, I told you before when I was I was really starting to grow in the Lord and I was going to a church in Washington, D.C. where I was living at the time, Mount Sinai Baptist Church. And, and I've said this before because it has such a profound, such a profound effect on me for the rest of my life. You go, you sit down and you sing songs, and this lady would always stand up before in front of me and start waving her hand and crying. And I'm like, really? You're obstructing my view, lady. God has been that good? Really? Okay. All right. God's good, but man, is he, is he good enough for you to obstruct my view? Okay, go ahead. All right. Well, we went one Wednesday night, and I've, I've shared this before, and she told her story. How she was strung out on crack, and she had all of her kids taken from her. DCFS came and took the kids, living in the alleys, doing other things to survive. Yes. And someone shared the gospel with her. She got saved. She got off a crack, got a job, cleaned her up, went to the DCFS office, and they said, you know what? Uh, it's going to take a long time for you to get your kids back, lady. Go ahead and sign it up. And she said she accepted it because she deserved it. She was not a good mother. And in tears, she went home and cried and prayed. And shortly after, there was a knock on the door. Lady from the DCFS had all of her kids there in, in, in record time. She got her kids back. And every time I saw her, she had those kids with her, boy, every time. And she said, and she shared, I think it was on a Wednesday night or Thursday night. I forget when prayer was or whatever. But when I heard her story, when I spent time outside of Sunday morning with her, my heart broke. And I said, wow, you arrogant, judgmental jerk. You don't know what Jesus did for this woman. And every time she would sing songs, she would stand up with tears in her eyes and she would wave her hands and she would say, praise God. And so next Sunday when she did it, totally different attitude. Why? Because now I knew a story. 
Now I knew her. And I didn't mind scooting over so I could see. Because now I knew her. All of us have sins. Every last one of us. And if we know Jesus, all of us have testimonies. But you don't know them. You don't know their testimonies and you don't know these people. Get to know them. And in that instance, love covered a multitude of sins. When I got to know her a little better, I loved her and I appreciated her situation. And no longer did I judge her. Those things happen over meals and time spent with one another. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Has God blessed you in an error? Of course he has. Start to use your skills to love God's children. See what he does. If you're an accountant, no one can force you, but as you, if you're an accountant, do someone taxes who can't afford an accountant. A mechanic, fix someone's car who can't afford a mechanic. Whatever your gift is, spiritual gifts, if you're an encourager, encourage people. Whatever it is God has, 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 has gift you with, love others and see what he can do. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, that is something specific. Speaks is sometimes translated as preach or teach, which means if someone is a pastor or a teacher, you preach for the glory of God, not for yourself. Any preacher who uses the pulpit and scriptures to bring glory to his name. No. No. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies you serve not so you can get recognition. You serve that God may be glorified in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Anyone who uses a ministry in any way to lift his name up or her name up. You don't understand love. And as I'm reading this throughout the week, I, I did get convicted. We, we, we need to. It, it says that you should never, ever seek glory for yourself. But those around us, or those around those who serve, we should. We should acknowledge. Not just take it for granted. That's on our part. But on the individual part. Never, ever, ever, ever do something. So that you can receive recognition from men. No. I'll close with this. There was a ministry that just recently ceased to exist because the head of that ministry was caught in several discretions. 
one discretion was that the leader of this ministry actually paid $25,000 to coordinate a nationwide network to promote his book. And it went on the New York's bestseller list. This ministry purchased 11,000 books, ranging from the price of 18 to $20. Also, 6,000 books, they say, in the church, 6,000 people were encouraged to buy the book. And the church gave their names. Another 5,000 books were bought in bulk. When they asked whether or not the church paid for these books, $123,000 for the individual sales and $93,000 for the bulk sales, the church refused to answer the question. Which means this ministry paid roughly $210,000 so that the head of this ministry could be on the New York's bestsellers list for a book. Now, of all of the other indiscretions done, this is the worst, in my opinion. Because this individual saw the church as a vehicle by which he could make a name for himself. Unacceptable. God will never, ever, 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 ever bless a ministry or an individual who thinks that the gospel is somehow a vehicle to get money and fame by somehow having a, a, a ministry in which, quote unquote, the Bible is used so that men can elevate themselves. No, no. Jesus is glorified. Only Jesus. That's love. Not sacrifice. And be careful if, if, if you're hurt because people didn't acknowledge what you did. God saw it. And if men fail to recognize it, God saw it. He saw it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that? Because that will dominate everything in your life. Your belief on God, your belief in the Holy Spirit. Love. Invite people over. So what if your, your house may be dirty? That doesn't matter. As long as the food is good. We don't care. Use the gifts God has given you. To bless others. The word of God. It informs our minds how to think. Our hearts. Our hearts how to will. So that the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Is glorified. Let us pray.